We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Everybody, Steve with Sense of Delium coming at you on the 13th of May, Friday, the 13th of March. My fault. I'm an idiot. Forgive me. I forgot what month it was. Coming with Dr. Alan Finister of the book that he's co-authored with Father Thomas Crean, Integralism, the manual, a manual of political philosophy to talk about criticism, past, present, and future. Dr. Alan, thank you for joining and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself to start. Oh, uh, well, thank you for having me on. Um, I, uh, I'm from England, from the northeast of England, uh, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, I uh, teach uh, um, theology at uh, St. John Vianney Theological Seminary in Denver, Colorado. Um, I uh, studied history as an undergraduate and then philosophy and theology at Oxford University. And then I went to um, uh, Austria and studied um, Catholic theology at an institute that John Paul II founded there. And then I did a doctorate at Aberdeen University, which was founded by Pope Alexander VI, a famously immoral Borgia Pontiff. Um, and, uh, and, and I did my studies on the influence of Catholic, particularly uh, the philosophy of St. Thomas, on the people who founded the European Union, particularly the uh, chap called Robert Schumann. Um, who was the main founder of the European Union back in the early 1950s. And then I, uh, and then I, well, eventually I wound up teaching at that place in Austria that I had been studying at and uh, for about five years. And then I came to, um, uh, came to Denver, Colorado. Um, and, uh, and just over the last few years, I've been working on this uh, manual of, uh, of, of scholastic political philosophy with a, a great Dominican, um, called uh, Father Thomas Crean, who's also an Englishman, though he's from the south of England, whereas I'm from the north. What's with the English that you don't like us, the uh, guys in the States? You guys stick with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure if somebody is, he suggested the idea to me, so it wasn't that I. Wasn't that <laughs> something, I was, something to get back at the war or something, huh? <laughs> so. No, uh, I'm married to a Texan, so I'm very open minded. <laughs> So talk about Christendom, past, present, and future. Where, where do we want to start with this? Well, um, I mean, I think uh, in understanding, one of the courses I teach at the seminary is church history. Mm -hmm. And um, in understanding the history of the church and also understanding what, what the church is in some ways, uh, the, uh, the concept of Christendom is very important um, uh, because uh, it reflects the lay side 
of uh, of the church's identity and um uh, and and if we if we lose hold of that we kind of lose a sense of of what the church is both in the present and in the past and therefore also in the future so so for example um uh we um we tend to the, the the history of the church tends to get reduced to a kind of history of the papacy um instead of a history of the, the church obviously the papacy is crucial if you're not in communion with the pope you're not in the church so uh, so it's uh, important um, but uh, but it's still it's still not the same thing as the church um and um uh and so so it, it tends to obscure our proper understanding of of of, of church history and then it obscures our understanding of the present day because we tend to think of the church as being the clergy so you know you'll often get this uh, someone will come and tell you that the, the, the you've been they've been treated very badly by the church and um and you say well you know gosh were you unjustly excommunicated by an ecumenical council and then we say no 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 father such and such was rude to me the other day and you're like well, yeah father such and such is not competent to represent the entire church um, <laughs> um and you you yourself have certain duties in representing the church relative to uh, other people so uh, yeah um and i think um when we lose a sense of the fact that uh, that the temporal order what we call the state although that's probably a misleading term but anyway but the, te the temporal order ought to be conformed to christ uh, and that that's the job of the laity, then we lose a sense of the laity really being part of the church and, and what the laity are doing, and we lose a sense of of what the church is and what 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 it what it has achieved and, and done in history, um, and uh, and yeah, it's it's damaging theologically, it's damaging, it's damaging morally and spiritually. So I think think the understanding the lay aspect of the church's identity, which is at its most fullest, is most fullest, at its fullest is realized in, in the realization of Christendom, which is the subjection of the temporal order to Christ, um, is, is crucial for, for understanding what it means to be a Christian. Again, the hierarchy, correct. We got uh, laymen wanting to be priests and priests wanting to be laymen. So everything's all discombobulated right now. So, absolutely that's right you'll get a sermon sermons on things that are nothing to do with the clergy um uh, and then the, the same priest who are preaching those sermons will be trying to get the, the laity to turn into little clerics and start dispensing holy communion and uh, you know it doesn't doesn't make any sense at all that they should be preaching about the blessed trinity and how what i need to do in order to be saved and uh, and the laity should be uh, um sitting in the pews and uh, participating in the mass like lay people and then going out and subjecting the world to christ no, I had a, I'm trying to get a hold of this one priest to talk about, you'd appreciate this, uh, Father Noel, uh, Blessed Noel Pinot. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, when we first text, he sent me, uh, I sent him, hey, Father, it's Steve from uh, the emails. We've been emailing back and forth. And his response was, son. I'm going, man, that was a great response from a priest <laughs> to call son. Now, you not did offend me, anything. So that's, he's yeah. father, I'm son. Okay. And we get, how come we can't figure that out? Was there any other time in church history that we were, I don't know, thinking we could run the church? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, um, uh, the clergy are the only people who are competent to act on behalf of the church. Um, but that doesn't mean that they are the church. So, so that, it, it, that happens on quite a, quite a, 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 a a modest level as well so so 
the church is acting when a pope or an ecumenical council solemnly defines a truth of the faith. That's the church acting, mm -hmm. right? Um, but, uh, and the church is acting when a priest validly consecrates the Eucharist or, or validly and licitly um, uh, baptizes a child. Mm -hmm. um, and the church is acting when a, when a law is promulgated for the entire church. Um, but when a priest gives a slightly dodgy sermon and says there are five persons in the Trinity or something, that doesn't mean the church has just said there are five persons in the Trinity. Um, or, 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 or a priest invalidly uh, baptizes a child because he says, I baptize you in the name of the Creator and the Redeemer and the Sanctifier. That doesn't mean the church just invalidly baptized someone. It means that this chap acted beyond his competence. Um, so, I mean, uh, it's a bit like if I was going through passport control, I was popping back to England, I was going through passport control. And uh, now the, the guy on passport control looks at my passport, he checks whether I have a legal right to enter the United Kingdom, and then he lets me in. Okay, so the United Kingdom admitted me, right? That's true. But if he then says, um, says uh, he's rude to me because he doesn't like people from Newcastle, that doesn't mean that the United Kingdom was just rude to me, right? He wasn't given legal authority to insult people um, in his capacity as a, as a, as a, as a passport controller. Um, and we, we have to understand this, this, this relationship, um, otherwise things get very confused. Thank God there's a few people from the United Kingdom that will get that joke that watched this. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what are some of the important things we should know about church history from past to fix the present to have a good future? Well, um, there was a, uh, in a way, the best way for understanding church history and for understanding Christendom is to understand uh, what the Middle Ages are. Um, and uh, originally the Middle Ages was invented as an insult. It was a term uh, used by people who were enthusiastic about the sort of neo-pagan a revival of the so-called Renaissance, and they referred to the Middle Ages as the boring bit between um, the wonderful pagan classical antiquity and the wonderful neo-pagan uh, sort of 15th, 16th, 17th century um, uh, Renaissance. Um, but uh, in fact, it, it in some ways, it, uh, unintentionally, it rather well describes the structure of, of Christian history. There was a great, um, a great church historian, sadly an Anglican, but uh, but he um, he was also blessed by also coming from my town in the northeast of England. But anyway, um, uh, his his name uh, R. W. Southern. He wrote the second volume in the Penguin History of the Christian Church, which is called um, among many many other important works, uh, which is called um, Western Society and the Church in the Middle Ages. And in the in the, in the in the opening part of that book, he defines what the Middle Ages were. And he says they're that period during which the church was identified with the whole of organized society. Right? And, and that's essentially what Christendom is. It's the realization of the social kingship of Christ in the lay order through the identification of the church with the whole of organized society. And then that helps you to understand the period that comes before the Middle Ages and the period that comes after, because they're that the Middle Ages is, is middle relative to them. So the um so antiquity, the period before the Middle Ages, is the period during which the church became identified with the whole of organized society. And then modernity, the horrible period in which we're living, is the period during which the church ceased to be identified with the whole of organized society. So, so, so Christendom, which is the state of the church as identified with the whole of organized society, is what defines the Middle Ages. And, and you can understand 
the history before and after uh, once you understand what caused the identification and what caused the separation. And basically, um, obviously, the conversion of the Roman Empire caused the identification, but uh, and and uh, and that conversion was expressed legally in uh, in in several stages, uh, climaxing really with the um, coronation of Charlemagne uh, on Christmas Day 800, uh, which established that the spiritual power sets up the temporal power um, in the last analysis, um, and then the the separation occurred. Uh, in three stages or so, um, uh, from the time of the Reformation until the present day. Um, but there were two events, sort of very long processes, which led to the identification and the separation on a kind of social level rather than just a legal level. And the main event that led to the identification was um, the invasion, the Germanic barbarian invasions of the Roman Empire. They, they completely destroyed sort of civilized order in the west until the only people left who could read and write were bishops and monks and uh, everyone else had fled to byzantium um, and uh, and so so the church reconstructed civilization and the legal order in the west and that's what allowed the total identification of the church with society in in the latin west um, and then what caused the separation was the reformation so so initially um uh, by invoking this principle of scripture alone it made it impossible to determine what the true content of christianity is so so therefore i mean so so there was about 100 years of 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 disputation and warfare until uh, until the end of the 30 years war in the middle of the 17th century when the the emperors uh, were definitively prevented from from ending the reformation because the French kept subsidizing the Protestants to stop them <laughs> doing it because um, they had a rivalry. The two families, the French kings and the, and, the, and the imperial family had a rivalry and the French kings, despite being Catholics, didn't want the imperial family to do too well. So they, they vigorously sabotaged the military side of the counter-reformation. So when, um, when the Thirty Years' War ended with a stalemate, then it became clear that, that you couldn't use uh, divine revelation as the principle of public policy and public law uh, if if the counter-reformation was never going to prevail and so this new sort of mutated second stage of the polymorph the reformation emerged which was um, uh, the enlightenment which was a movement to eliminate divine revelation as the source of public policy and public law and secularize Europe and eventually that completely destroyed the foundations of all the existing European states. And so it moved into the third stage, which was the revolution, which caused the violent separation of Christianity from society. And we're sort of living through that. We're living through the, the latter stages of that process. And if you, you look at the three legal, three legal uh, stages of, of identification, you've got the year 312, when um, Constantine converted, the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, that's the kind of stage one. And then 380, when the Emperor Theodosius declared the Catholic faith to be the religion of the Roman Empire, that's the second stage. And then uh, you've got the year 800 with the coronation of Charlemagne. Um, and, um, and that's the kind of final stage when this, the supremacy of the spiritual power is established over the temporal power. 
And then the undoing also has three stages. So in, in 1555, uh, there was a, a treaty whereby um, the uh, Protestants were permanently recognized as part of the legal order of the Holy Roman Empire because they couldn't get rid of them. Um, uh, it's called the Treaty of Augsburg. And the, and the Emperor, Charles V, was so miserable about having to, uh, having to agree to that that he abdicated and went off to live in a monastery for the last years of his life. And um, he was actually the last emperor to be crowned by the Pope. And then the second stage, and, and that reverses what happened with Charlemagne because, because th th that treaty agreed that uh, the, the ruler got to decide what religion his subjects had to have. Um, and that's the opposite of what happened with Charlemagne, which is that Charlemagne got to be emperor because the Pope made him emperor. Mm -hmm. So instead of, the, instead of the, the truths of the faith determining who the legitimate ruler was, uh, the ruler determines which, which religion the people had to hold. And then the second stage was the, um, was the uh, uh, Concordat of 1801 between Napoleon and Pope Pius VII, and that they were, there'd been a long persecution of the church during the first French, 10 years of the French Revolution. And um, they, uh, and the Pope was trying to resolve this and Napoleon wanted to resolve it as well because he wanted to consolidate his new regime by getting the Catholics back on side. And uh, originally it was intended that this agreement should say that Catholicism was the religion of the French state. But in the end, it was watered down at the last minute to say that it was just the religion of most of the French people. And, um, and uh, the result of that was that um, uh, you no longer had, it undid what happened in 380. No longer did you have uh, Catholicism as formally recognized as true by the civil order. And then the undoing, the third stage would be the return to outright persecution. And we're just sort of, just uh, entering into that phase at the moment, I'm afraid. <laughs> Indeed, we won't get too deep into that part. <laughs> Um, so obviously the solution is just to return back to the kingship of Christ and invert everything that got inverted. Do you see any uh, signs of inverting the inverted, uh, getting back on the right track? Of any head, things, head tips, any notches, any positive things you can see to being able to restore this? Well, um, at the moment, uh, things don't look amazing. Um, uh, the... Um, but one of the one of the key principles to remember is that, uh, uh, as Aristotle says, what's last in execution is first in intention. Uh -huh. You can't do the right thing now unless you know what it is you're ultimately trying to achieve. And um, and, and and human beings are, uh, as Aristotle also says, political animals. So they don't really, if you don't tell somebody not just what he would look like if his life was transformed by the gospel but what his society would look like if it was transformed by the gospel, then you're not really evangelizing that person. There's a kind of unreality to, to, the, to the way in which you're proclaiming the gospel. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it greatly harms our ability to transmit the gospel to individuals and families, the fact that we're unable at this point, because of the confusion on this issue, to explain to them what the society that they belong to would look like if, if, if that society as a whole accepted the gospel. And um, although it doesn't make much effort to explain how it is, uh, the Vatican II document on religious liberty says that what it's about to say in no way alters the traditional teaching of the church concerning the obligation, not just of individuals, but of whole 
societies to the true religion and the one church of Christ. And, and we have to proclaim that aspect of the gospel, otherwise we're not going to get anywhere. And I do think that people are slowly beginning to realize that. And in that sense, there's a sign of the very, very smallest buds of spring there. Um, in, the, in that people realize now that liberalism is not just this kind of friendly, uh, su supposedly neutral uh, environment in which we can all safely pursue the, the, the activities of the church without having to make any demands on the civil order. They realize that liberalism is a, is a militant, proselytizing and intolerant uh, worldview which, uh, which intends to eliminate anything incompatible with it. And, um, and it's really impossible to deny that now. I mean, you, in, order not for, in order for Catholicism not to be offensive to the civil order, in modern Western societies, it's obvious that it would have to embrace complete apostasy and, and, and you know, transform itself into some horrendous second version of Anglicanism in order to be still, uh, in order to be still acceptable. Uh, and so, and, and more and more people can see that. And so they're beginning to realize that, that they, that the evangelization of, of, the, of whole societies is not an optional extra. Yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to get you on and other people in here just to show them that there's people out here who are teaching this stuff that they might not know. I mean, I run into this every bit every day about someone. I had him on my desk the other day at this conference, uh -huh. Garcia Moreno. And obviously nobody has a clue about him. And he transferred an entire country unto the Sacred Heart of Christ and Mac yes. and Mary. And obviously he got killed for it by the Freemasons. <laughs> but find anybody in the streets that know who that guy is, and yeah, you know, you're pretty safe bet. You could bet the house you're not going to find it. <laughs> what can yeah, well, I mean, the the distortion of history is 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 a very serious. I mean, obviously, it used to be again that we had the Catholics without having to just be apologists. Mm -hmm. You just had Catholic historians uh, were, you know, gave you the authentic account of history. I mean, Hilaire Belloc was you know, disproportionately an apologist uh, compared to a historian. And I think that's partly because he, you know, had to keep body and soul together. He needs to keep pumping the books out. But, uh, but it's surprising. I, I don't agree with every, every one of Belloc's interpretations of history by any means, but, but it's surprising how many, particularly in the sort of 70s and 80s, you saw how many uh, historians who were seen as dramatic and novel were, were just were just giving you what Belloc said with footnotes instead <laughs> instead of his original popular <laughs> historical analysis. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, as I say, I don't agree with everything that, that uh, Belloc has to say. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, um, th there's there's no there's no way of separating those two out. You can't understand the future properly or the present unless you really understand the past properly. So for those that can't go to your class, yeah. Uh, who would you recommend them read, like uh, Philip Hughes? Uh... Yes, I do. I use Philip Hughes as my um, as my main uh, textbook for the class. I mean, I know he died. Um, I don't know what in the early '60s or something. But um, in fact, in some ways, that makes him more useful for the purposes of my class because everything that's happened since the Council, mm 
Uh, this principle that, uh, that, you know, you don't understand the present until you understand the past applies the other way around. So, so a, almost all church history written since the council is really a concealed polemic about the Second Vatican Council uh, from one perspective or another. Yeah. Whereas, whereas Hughes is, is, a, is a truly eminent historian uh, with, a, with a very good prose style who knows his stuff. And, uh, and he's writing before and, and dying before any of that happens, but just before. So you, you get a you get a, a quite a helpful perspective. Uh, I think Hughes probably is. I don't know. I get the impression that he kind of thinks in regard to the present that or his present that um, although in principle uh, the um, the the union of the spiritual and temporal powers is a good thing. Uh, in practice, some sort of neutrality and religious liberty is actually is actually w works out in general for the best. Um, and I mean, I don't really think he's right about that. Obviously, um, he doesn't say it expressly. It's just a sort of mm -hmm. impression that you get when you read over his. He has two. He has a, a one-volume popular history of the Catholic Church, and a three-volume, which was supposed to be four-volume, but he died. Um, uh, history of the Church, which only goes up to the Reformation. And um, but they're, they're really the same book. They're just a condensed and an expanded version of the same book. But um, I mean, there is some truth to that perspective that he has um, uh, in that. Uh, in fact, somebody drew my attention to a letter by uh, the famous French sociologist uh, um, Alexis de Tocqueville mm -hmm. um, uh, the other day, um, which he he wrote about the position of the church in the United States and he has some some important comments on that subject in his book um, Democracy in America mm -hmm. which is uh, which people often cite yeah. um, where he says that, uh, that the the democratic atmosphere of the United States tends to make people into either irreligious or Catholics and he says he says that the the result is that the US population is slowly dividing between atheism and the Church of Rome <laughs> and a lot of people cite this very interesting passage a lot of people cite it as if it was evidence that in fact a situation of civil neutrality is one in which the church prospers but in fact it, this letter is very interesting he's more he goes into he's more frank in the letter than he is in the book and he says in the book sorry in the letter that um that uh the catholics don't approve of the civil in his time in the united states don't approve of the civil neutrality of the united states and uh, because and they're much more zealous and that they think that in the end if there were you know a vast majority of catholics in the u.s that it jolly well ought to be a formally catholic uh formally catholic civil order and um and it's clear from his comments there that he thinks that's the key thing that distinguishes them from the Protestants, who he calls the businessmen of religion, who he says that he says are lacking in zeal. So, that, so the ironic thing is that he that the reason why the Catholics, in his analysis, are profiting from the civil neutrality of the U.S. Uh, is because they don't approve of it. Mm -hmm. um, which I suppose is also true of the atheists, because I mean you can see now that they've turned the supposed civil neutrality into a situation where that involves banning religion from from every possible area of social life. <laughs> so it's obviously not neutrality at all. So so Leo the Thirteenth said the same thing. He said that the that the Catholic Church does uh, is prospering. He's writing in the late nineteenth century under the uh, under the civil order obtaining in the United States but Catholics mustn't believe that this is the most desirable arrangement you know that that's not acceptable for Catholics to think that and and that's and and 
So, so it seems that some kind of provisional neutrality as a result of the regrettable confusion concerning Christianity, which results from the Reformation, is acceptable as a kind of provisional arrangement that's actually quite helpful for the church. But to accept that, and here we come back to this last in execution, first in intention principle, to accept that as a, as a permanent desirable for its own sake settlement ultimately destroys the faith. Because if... if the implication of accepting it as a permanent settlement would be that uh, the truths of the faith are just not certain enough to be the basis of the civil order. Uh -huh. And if they're not certain enough to be the basis of the civil order, then they're not certain enough to die for. And if they're not certain enough to die for, then the whole of Christianity makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> um, so, I mean, and, and, and conversely, the implication of liberalism presents itself as, as a kind of neutral space. Uh -huh. uh, but in fact, every ideology and every worldview true or untrue has basic assumption that you should have freedom in regard to those things which are matters capable of reasonable doubt mm -hmm. and you should have unity concerning necessities but they disagree obviously as to what's capable of reasonable doubt and what is a necessity so what if i you tell say, you so say again sorry it's what i tell you well, exactly, yes. But if, if you say that, well, in religious matters and matters of overall philosophical worldview, we'll have neutrality and freedom, mm -hmm. but then in regard to um, the basic framework, particularly for buying and selling, um, uh, we'll have, you know, an iron, you know, iron laws that cannot be broken, then the implication of that is not neutrality, but that mindless hedonistic consumerism is the purpose of human existence and you know that's that's how people have responded if, if you if you buy that this is a desirable permanent settlement instead of a modus vivendi to to a more philosophically united society then then you've essentially accepted that hedonism is the purpose of human existence yeah no kidding on that one um so for everybody out there what would you be what would you say for them to start because I know somebody told me that I got crisis in the church by Philip Hughes. Yeah. It's, it's not at it. It's, apparently it's hard to find. Yeah. I think it's all three volumes of uh, the history of the church. Yeah. Brian Grant republished the one he did on English Reformation. Yeah. Uh, what would be step one just to attempt to right the ship? Um, in terms of, of perceiving things as, as they as they truly are, you mean, in the past? Mm-hmm. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I uh, let's think. Uh, there's there's a um, there's a really interesting book called um, by an author who I find very um, who very interesting, but I think he's also wrong on a lot of important things. But not in this book. Um, uh, Jacques Maritain wrote this book. He's a French philosopher, famous philosopher of the twentieth century. He wrote this book called Three Reformers, uh, and it's about uh, Martin Luther. Um, uh, René Descartes and uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, it basically shows uh, the, the, the destruction of three different aspects of Western civilization so, so uh, it, it, it's, it's an analysis of how Luther brought down um, uh, theology and uh, um, Descartes brought down speculative philosophy and uh, Rousseau brought down political philosophy um, and uh, that, that's a very good, uh, it's a very good thing to look at. There's a... Um, Did he uh, need psychological help after researching that book? <laughs> I don't know. Well, he, he subsequently embraced some rather unhelpful ideas. So oh. perhaps it was he was scarred by the experience. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but um, really, the, um, uh, you can trace... The, they're really three uh, 
eruptions of, of, uh, of something deeper, which is uh, a philosophical error which arose in the 14th century called nominalism, mm -hmm. which, which denied that there are real natures to things. And, uh, and that really causes the three errors of, of, um, of uh, uh, Luther, uh, Descartes and Rousseau, uh, because, um, because traditional Catholic philosophy uh, exemplified by St. Thomas Aquinas, but also in St. Augustine and Boethius. Um, traditional Catholic philosophy uh, teaches that there is a real human nature. Mm -hmm. And that means there are th that it's, there's an objective answer to what it means to be a good human being or a bad human being, just like you can tell a good apple or a bad apple when you look at it, um, uh, because you know what an apple is. So in the same way, you can tell a good human being and a bad human being. And consequently, because God's word is true and efficacious, if God makes you just, declares you just, then he makes you just, just like when he said, let there be light, there was light. So if he justifies you, then he makes you just. So consequently, we've always held that um, God renovates the soul at the point at which he forgives our sins. Um, and, and he pours faith, hope and charity and prudence and justice and temperance and fortitude into our souls uh, through sanctifying grace. And um, but the, these nominalists held that there was no objective answer to what some to what makes a good human being because there's no real human nature so as a consequence they held that uh, that um if god commanded you to commit adultery or, or to tell lies then that would suddenly become okay and, uh, and and the most famous of them william of ockham unfortunately a countryman of mine but he was from the south of england anyway um, he um uh, he um uh he taught that if god commanded you to curse him that would become a good thing to do uh, just so it's, it's what, what what gets called divine command theory and so, so ultimately that issue, and in fact, Luther used to refer to Occam as my master Occam, rather like Anakin Skywalker. And, um, and uh, so he, uh, um, so by, by Luther's theology is kind of the outflowing of that. So, so, so that God justifies us extrinsically. He just says, says we're just, and then whatever we do from that point onwards is basically okay, because he's decided to make it okay. And uh, so, and that, that then, of course, it also, destroys philosophy um, and this is expressed through Descartes, Descartes writings because if there's no natures then there are no things mm -hmm. because because what what allows me to tell where my hand ends and the table begins is the fact that, uh, that my hand is part of a human being and the table is a bit of wood you know so the two natures distinguish one object from another if uh, if there are no natures then then uh, you know me moving my little finger is just different in degree from me being shot in the head so ultimately there are no there are no real distinctions between things it's no longer the case as plato said that we that our mind cuts reality at the joints it's just uh, um you get this kind of metaphysical trench foot I don't know if you've ever heard of trench foot. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so everything, all objects, there are no real objects, they're all bleeding into each other. And uh, so the result is ultimately, if it's as our only experiences of things, that means that we don't actually see the real world. So the whole of modern philosophy goes off down this crazy rabbit hole of ultimately, I've no idea what the world is like, I'm kind of trapped inside my own mind and all this, this is complete gobbledygook and, and a, a vast and terrible waste of time. And then the the third the third effect of this this dreadful error of nominalism is is uh, what's called contractualism mm -hmm. in political philosophy where um in whereas the medievals thought that um 
you had to obey your rulers because man is a political animal and therefore God wills that man live in political society and political societies have to have rules and therefore the people who make up those rules get their authority from nature and therefore from God uh, hence St Paul says the powers that be are ordained of God um, now that sounds uh, you know a bit sort of authoritarian and hard line but in fact it isn't really because uh, one there, there are uh, several consequences of this one is that well, the first consequence is that you have to do as you're told by your temporal rulers. But the second consequence is that if your temporal rulers tell you to do something which is contrary to the natural law that's immoral, then you don't have to do what you're told. Um, and if they try and force you to do something that's contrary to the natural law, then you get the divine authority that they used to have to rule you transfers to you to resist them. Um, so, so it actually quite severely limits the uh, the authority of temporal rulers. And another consequence of this is that some um, because man is a political animal then insofar as it's possible it's good for all human beings to participate in the civil order to some degree or another now that will vary from one society to another depending on you know like we were talking about earlier with the fall of the roman empire the only literate people left for a few monks and bishops so it wasn't that easy for you know um Ugg the serf to to participate in the government of his particular dark ages monarchy <laughs> <laughs> but um but but nevertheless all the other things being equal it's actually uh, it's actually encourages the participation leo the 13th says this in a very fine encyclical of his called libertas he says that you know all other things being equal everyone should try and contribute to the to the civil order but uh, you you once you say there's no human nature then man can't be a political animal because he's got no nature to be political so so instead this this dreadful theory which sounds as if it's the basis of liberty and everything but in fact is a nightmare called contractualism comes along which is the idea that the reason why we have to do what the rulers tell us is because we all entered into this mysterious social contract to agree to do whatever the rulers tell us so it sounds like that's wonderful um, and it's freedom because we all had a contract but uh, it's not wonderful at all because there isn't such a contract for a start it never happened as Leo the 13th says that the contract which they allege is manifestly a fiction so it never happened um, and, and you but you have to believe in this fairy story everyone has to believe that everybody somehow in some unknown past they can't remember agreed to this contract because if anyone didn't then they would be free to do whatever they like you see because they wouldn't be part of the civil order and everything would collapse so we all have to believe in the fairy story of the social contract and then there's no limitations to uh, to what the state can do because we've agreed in advance to everything that it feels like doing um, and it doesn't matter whether or not it's right or wrong because it's all about the contract yep. and not about that at all so you so you end up with um instead of it sounds as if it's all wonderful and, and about liberty unlike saint paul telling us the powers that be are ordained of god but in fact what it ends up with is you know the democratic republic of this and the people's republic of that and and you find that your you know your family's being whisked off to a concentration camp um the the uh, the first um <laughs> the first french republic uh used to have on its banners some um, uh, la République une et indivisible de liberté, égalité, fraternité ou mort, the one and indivisible republic of liberty, equality, fraternity or death um, and that didn't mean you know that we we're willing to fight for the death of these things, it, it also meant that if you don't accept our interpretation of these things then you just have to die <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and they you know they, they, they lived by those principles and they, they executed them in, in, in several senses of the word execute <laughs> literally <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, no. That's, and you think about that. I was thinking about that. Uh, the birth canal contract thing is 
Yeah, wherever you go through the canal before you get your first breath, you sign your oath to the state and you're supposed <laughs> to obey everything there. That's there's your contract right there. Mm, uh, <laughs> so we're gonna wrap that up right there just because that's gonna be a lot for a lot of people to hold on to. But hey, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's perfect. Exactly what I was wanting you to do. Uh, but definitely have to do this again, especially when I got my kid and dinners on the table. <laughs> okay. Thanks for but, having me on. Doc, appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we look forward to doing it again. And uh, you have a great night. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.